the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king, to make supplication to him, and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Father God, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you so much for this wonderful book of Esther. I pray today that as we speak from uh, what is certainly the, uh, the key passage, the key Uh, chapter in the entire book. I pray, Father, that you will speak to our hearts. Fill me with your spirit. Help me today to be clear, accurate, practical, uh, right in my preaching. I pray, Lord, that you'd protect me from saying things I shouldn't. Uh, Give me boldness and clarity to say the things I should. And just use this time. Speak to us from this passage. Convict us if that's needed. Change us where we need to be changed. Make us more like we ought to be more like our Savior, as a result of this study in your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, 
but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. William Cowper wrote that hymn in 1773, called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. His good friend John Newton, uh, who we know as the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton published that particular song in a, in a, a publication called 26 Letters on Religious Subjects in 1774. And there's an interesting story that goes with that hymn. Uh, it is believed to be the last hymn that William Cowper published. And uh, here is the story. This, this has never been corroborated, but it is uh, what has come down through history as the, uh, the basis of the hymn. Uh, Cowper was known to struggle with depression and doubt. Uh, I've read autobiographies, or biographies rather, of Cowper uh, that indicated that all of his life he struggled mightily with depression. He had suicidal thoughts often. He doubted his salvation continuously, and yet he gave us some of the greatest hymns in our hymn book. He's an interesting person. But he struggled with depression and doubt, and one night he decided to commit suicide. And he was going to drown himself. And she called a cab, and he told the driver to take him to the Thames River. However, as they proceeded along, a huge Thick fog came down and prevented them from finding the river. After driving around lost for a while, the cabbie finally decided, I'm, I'm just going to have to let you out. I don't know where we are. And so he let him out, and to Cowper's surprise, he found himself on his own doorstep. God, as if this is true, God had sent the fog to keep him from killing himself. Even in our blackest moments, God watches over us. And certainly, that was an interesting beginning to that hymn. But we have something very similar to it here in chapter 4, don't we? God did indeed move in mysterious ways to deliver his people from Haman's plot. We already saw some of that in the first three chapters where God, although he's never mentioned and he's never acknowledged, was ever present and ever working behind the scenes in the first three chapters of the book. In his providential care for his people, we've already seen him move Vashti aside to make way for Esther. We've already seen him enable Esther's selection as Vashti's replacement. And we've already seen him elevate Mordecai into a position of honor and power uh, in the court uh, where he was in a place where he could save the king's life. Something that, that part of the story we haven't seen the conclusion of yet, but we will. At the time, they all seemed like unconnected events, and yet God was using them. God would soon reveal that each part of this story was him working behind the scenes to deliver his people. Well, now when we get to chapter 4, all the pieces are in place on the chessboard. And so let's see what God is going to do. And we're going to follow the same thing we've done, I think, the last three weeks. Now, first of all, let's just talk a little bit about what happened. Let's just kind of look down through the Scripture and see this, understand the story and then make some application from that. So what happened here? What happened in chapter 4? Well, the previous chapter ended with Haman's vile and wicked plan in place. You remember his plan. He had convinced the king to sign a decree authorizing the genocide of all the Jews. Unbelievably, the king had signed it, and it had been, uh, it had been uh, published throughout the land. It was now public knowledge. And so news of this reached Mordecai. We see that in verse number 1, Mordecai. And we see that he mourned that decree. I wonder what he thought personally. I mean, whatever his motivation for not kneeling to Haman, 
at this particular point, he had to have realized that his personal, whatever it was, his reason for not kneeling, had now brought disaster not only upon himself, but upon all of his people. And so he mourned. His, his, his mourning was so public, and it was such a, such a, a loud, vocal, real mourning uh, that everybody could see it. He was so public in his display that he went all the way to the, to the king's gate, as close as he could get to the king's gate, without actually going through it. Because if he'd gone through it, he would have put his life in jeopardy. No one was allowed to be mourning in the presence of the king. The king lived this idyllic life where he was sheltered from anything that he didn't want to see. And, of course, Mordecai wasn't the only one to be mourning over this decree. Jews everywhere had heard of it, for it was published in all the king's provinces. Chapter 3 and verse number 13 tells us. Jews everywhere were fasting, we learn in verse number 3. And I think, no doubt, praying as well for deliverance. At least some of the Jews were. The word fasting is an interesting one. We need to think about that a little bit. It's mentioned three times in the chapter, once in verse 3, twice in verse 16. Many of the Jews... All around, fasted, in verse 3. Later in the chapter, we're going to learn that Esther asked Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Shushan in the palace and have them fast, in verse number 16. And while she and her maids would fast also. Now, I've made my belief pretty clear, I think, and uh, I'm not alone in thinking this, that neither Esther nor Mordecai were people of God or people of prayer. We've seen no evidence up to this point, and I still maintain that thought. I am sure that there were many of the Jews that are mentioned in verse number 3 that are included in that group that not only fasted but prayed. I mean, after all, that group included Jews everywhere, even those pious Jews who were back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple and reinstituting temple worship. So I'm certain that there was some prayer going on. But there's nothing here to indicate that it was going on from Esther and Mordecai. And certainly we can't use the word fast for that. Some point to that word's inclusion here to defend Mordecai and Esther's piety. They, they assume that it implies prayer. But the word fast is the Hebrew word, and I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew, so I'll just take my best shot. It's the Hebrew, Hebrew word psalm, which means one thing, one thing only. It means to abstain from food. That's what it means. Now, it's true that fasting and prayer are oftentimes linked in Scripture. The Gospel of Luke introduced us to Anna. You remember Anna when she met the, the child Jesus? Uh, it says here that Anna was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. They're linked there. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Again, they're linked there. Jesus explained the reason for the disciples' inability to cast out a demon. He said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. They're linked there. Prayer and fasting are related disciplines. They often could and should be practiced together, but it is an assumption to link them here. Because the text only says they fasted. It does not say they prayed. And it is entirely possible to fast without praying. I've done it. How many of you have done it? Probably many. All that it means is to abstain from food. And so I'm certain uh, that there are many who have. We can assume, and that's all we can do, that when the text describes so many Jews fasting, at least some of them must have been praying, but that's all the text allows. To go beyond that is to read into Scripture. And we can't make the case fasting is equivalent to prayer, for the word doesn't mean it. It simply means abstinence from food. So they fasted. 
Next thing that happened was word of Mordecai's mourning reached Esther in verse number 4. Apparently she was so sheltered in the palace that up until now, up until she heard about Mordecai sitting in the gate mourning, she didn't know anything about this. She hadn't heard about this decree. She lived just a shelter of life there as the king did. And Mordecai had no direct way to communicate with her or her with him because of that sheltered position. So she sent Hathak, a servant, one of the king's eunuchs, to find out what was wrong. With Mordecai. Isn't it interesting that all the communication that took place now between Mordecai and Esther took place through this intermediary? They couldn't talk to each other. They couldn't be in each other's presence because of her sheltered position. Here is Hathak, this intermediary. We've learned so far of the main characters in, in, in the story. There was Ahasuerus, the king, and Vashti, the queen, who got deposed. And then there was Mordecai, the Jew, and Esther, uh, who became the queen. And then and now we just learned about Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And here we learn of somebody else, Hathak. A servant, one of the king's eunuchs. He seemed to be such a minor player, but he played a major role in this entire story. So she sent Hathak to find out what was going on, and Mordecai, in verses 7 to 8, told Hathak what had happened. He gave her a copy, gave him a copy of the decree to take back to Esther, along with instructions for her to go to the king on behalf of her people. Now, isn't that interesting? Now Hathak knew Esther's secret was out. All this time, Mordecai has been telling Esther, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. And now he makes it very, very plain. He, uh, this jeopardy's upon him now, and he revealed it for her. She didn't have to reveal it. He did it for her. So Esther received the news from Hathak, sent him back to Mordecai in verses 9 through 11. She reminded him of facts that he no doubt already knew. As an officer of the court, the king was protected. He was sheltered in such a way that uh, any, any unwanted visitors uh, that would uh, venture into his presence uh, would be killed, almost without exception. He could have her killed if she barged in unannounced. She hadn't seen the king in 30 days. She had every reason to believe uh, that, the, that her, this would be a very real danger for her. And that brings us to verses 13. Which are the key verses, not only this chapter, but the key verses of the book of Esther. The pivotal words spoken by Mordecai. Look at verse 13. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What words? What glorious words. Those are the words that God used to spur Esther into action, even at the risk of her death. Now, some have considered those words a great declaration of Mordecai's faith. I, you know, I, I read a lot of commentaries when I'm studying for a message, and it is amazing how, how uh, scholars are split on the book of Esther. There are those who believe that Esther and Mordecai were godly people and prayerful people, and that this was a wonderful declaration of Mordecai's faith. And there are others who say, what? It's not even mentioned in there. And, and, and I side with them, as you well know by now. Uh, there's, there's no indication here of, of any faith from Mordecai. If there was ever a time to declare it, it would be now, right? Is there, could there possibly have been a better time for him to declare that God would deliver them than, than here? If there were ever a time to fall back on even the fa- feeblest of faith in God, it would be here, wouldn't it? But no mention of God. We've all heard the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. And we know what that means. It's just simply a reminder to us that when things get really bad, 
even the least faithful, even oftentimes unbelievers, will find themselves crying out to God. Yet not even here does Mordecai mention God. He mentions deliverance from another place. That could mean anything. In his original communication to Esther, he didn't seek deliverance from God. He sought it from Esther and from Ahasuerus. That's who he was looking to for help. And now he says that if they failed to provide it, some other would, but still no mention of God. He, didn't, he, he seemed to have some understanding that there was a future promise to the Jews. He expected them as a people to be delivered. There had to be some history there that he, had, he was aware of. But if he had any sort of real faith in God, it must have been of the most rudimentary kind, for how could it not surface now in this most disastrous of moments in his life? Quoting from one commentator, he said this, In this section, as elsewhere in the book, Esther and Mordecai are seen as great patriots on behalf of the Jewish nation, but are not presented as righteous people like others in the Old Testament who fully trusted the Lord. Nothing is said about Esther praying, though many commentators say her fasting meant she also prayed. I disagree with that. She simply instructed Mordecai to fast for three days with the Jews in Susa, as she and her maids would also do. In his words to Esther, Mordecai told her three things. He told her, first of all, number one, you cannot assume you'll be spared, even if you're in the palace. You are a Jew, and the decree is that all Jews will be destroyed. Number two, your failure to act won't prevent deliverance from another place. Now, again, some commentators believe Mordecai was talking about God there. Maybe he did, but the text does not say that. And number three, you are not in the palace by accident. Whether or not Mordecai was referring to the providence of God and putting her there or not, uh, or whether he was thinking it it was something else, I don't know, he told her she had been put there for a purpose. This was it. This was her day. This was her reason for being elevated to the throne in the first place. And, of course, here's the deal, right? It doesn't really matter whether Mordecai and Esther understood that God was behind all of this. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether or not they sought God's help in any of this. We who read it today through the lens of the rest of Scripture and through understanding what happened, because we've read all the way to the end of the book, we know without a shadow of a doubt that it was God who had elevated her to that position in the first place. We know that it was God who was using Mordecai and and putting these words into Mordecai's mouth. We know that it was God in his providence who was about ready to deliver his people. Deliverance of God's people would always and only come from God. We see it today, whether or not they did then. If Mordecai was not a believer, he wouldn't be the first person to speak a great truth for God. He wouldn't be the first one to, even if he was lost, to stand and say something that was prophetic. I think of Caiaphas, who was used by God to preach a great truth about Jesus. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. John chapter 11. Caiaphas did not believe that Jesus Christ was going to die to save his people from their sins. But he spoke that spiritual truth anyway. And likewise, whether he knew it or not, Mordecai spoke a great spiritual truth about the providence of God, didn't he, when he told Esther, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Whether he meant it as such or not, it was a wonderful reminder to all of us of the overriding, unbreakable, always perfect, sovereign control of our God. And as we progress through the rest of the book of Esther, 
we're going to see just how true Mordecai's prophecy was. So that's what happened. How can we apply that? How can we apply it to our lives? And I can think of several applications we ought to ponder and consider from this passage. Here's one. There are some causes too great for Christians to remain silent. There are some causes too great. When God's people are threatened or God's law is defamed, men and women of faith must act. An example, abortion is the law of our land. The Supreme Court of the United States of America has ruled it acceptable. But God abhors it, calls it murder. Abortion is the murder of the most innocent, the unborn child. And in light of that, Christians simply cannot be silent and accepting of something like that. We must speak up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who lived and died during the wicked reign of Adolf Hitler. He died at the hand of Adolf Hitler's regime, executed for his role in attempting to assassinate Hitler. Now think about that. A preacher, a theologian, a a, a person of the word attempted to kill the ruler of his country. He didn't just think about it. He didn't just pray about it. He had a hand in it. He tried physically to kill Hitler. He believed, and Hitler had, or history has shown him right, that Hitler's regime was so evil and so anti-God that it must be stopped at any cost. He could not do nothing. He had to act. There is a great Star Trek quote that fits right here. I just happened to hear this last night as I was, I thought I got to fit that in there somewhere. Captain Jean-Luc Picard said, when faced with just such a situation, he said, there are times, sir, when men of good conscience cannot blindly follow orders. That's true. It was, I believe, Edmund Burke who famously said, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So sometimes, Christians, we have to stand up. Sometimes, Christians, we have to take a risk. We have to speak up. We have to fight for what is right, no matter what the cost. Mordecai said that to Esther. And we're going to see in the next chapter that Esther acted upon it and did just that. So that's one application. There are some causes too great for Christians to remain silent. Here's another. Anybody can be used by God to accomplish great things. Anybody can be used by God to accomplish Great, great things. I like what Warren Wiersbe said about Hathak. Hathak, this insignificant person who's mentioned here. He said, quote, I doubt that Hathak realized what an important part he was playing in God's plan to defeat Haman and save the Jews. So often in the work of the Lord, he uses obscure people to accomplish important tasks. What was the name of the lad who gave Jesus his loaves and fishes? Who were the men who rescued Paul by lifting him over that Damascus wall in a basket? What was the name of the little servant girl who told Naaman to go see the prophet? We don't know. But God used these people to accomplish his purposes. As great doors can swing upon small hinges, so great events can turn upon the deeds of small and sometimes even anonymous people. It's interesting, isn't it, how as we study the book of Esther, and I confess that until I studied this particular chapter, I never even thought about this. We always talk about all the characters in Esther. I thought I had named them all when we finished the other couple of chapters, and then I come here. We give such short shrift to this person who played such an important role in the deliverance of the Jews. 
those of us who are saved will one day reach the shores of heaven and many things that were mysterious will be clear. And many of the things that we wondered about here will suddenly be obvious and plain. And many of those who labored here in small ways and often in obscure ways will be revealed. Never think for a minute, Christian, that your service, no matter how small it might seem to you, is insignificant. The songwriter said, In the harvest field thou ripen, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. There's another application here, and that is this. You have a role to play in God's grand plan. You, whoever you might be in this room, have a role to play in God's grand plan. And, of course, this is the main application we can make from this passage, I think. Mordecai's admonition to Esther could be paraphrased as, this is the whole reason you're here. This is it. This is why you're here. On my bookshelf, I have a book. (laughs) I have a lot of books on my bookshelf. But I have a book written by Pastor Rick Warren entitled The Purpose Driven Life. As that book is one of the greatest bestsellers in the history of the world, I imagine some of you also have a copy of that book on your shelves. The book has a subtitle, What on Earth Am I Here For? You ever ask that question, Christian? What on earth am I here for? We could ask it as a general question. Why was I born? What is my purpose for being alive? What is my purpose for living? We could ask it much more specifically, such as why am I in this church? Why am I here at Friendship Bible Church? And we can get even more specific than that. Why am I here at Friendship Bible Church today? On, what is today, June 10th, 2018. You see, the fact is, Christian, none of us are here by accident. Our birth, our life, it's not an accident. It's, it's all part of God's plan. Just your being in this church is not an accident. God has brought you here. Your attendance at this service on this very day is not an accident. God has brought you here. You have a role to play. You have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. God's word speaks of spiritual gifts. We've spoken of them before. Not very long ago, we talked about them in Sunday school. Every Christian has a spiritual gift or gifts. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We, being many, are one body in Christ, having gifts, Romans chapter 12 says. 1 Corinthians 12, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Or as the New Living Translation makes that verse so clear, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Each of us. All of us. Every one of us. Are there tasks unfulfilled here? Ministries unmanned? Needs unmet? Are there opportunities for which you know in your heart of hearts you're qualified and gifted and able? And yet... Ignoring? What are you doing, Christian? I can say on the authority of Scripture that you are here with a purpose. And so what is that purpose? If you don't know it and if you aren't fulfilling it, you ought to be at the front of this church praying at the end of this service and asking God to help you to know it. You ought to be praying as Paul, Saul of Tarsus prayed on the Damascus Road when he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? We ought to be praying that until he answers that prayer and we know. 
Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You have a role to play. And that leads into the next application. Just a couple more. If you don't fulfill your role, God will use somebody else and get it done. But it was meant to be your role. If you don't fulfill your role, God will use somebody else and get it done. But it was meant to be yours. I'm reminded of my very first service in this church. I was in the fifth grade. We had just moved here. And my dear aunt, who bequeathed this beautiful piano to our church, who was for so many years pretty much the mainstay here and just about did everything here, one of the most faithful servants this church has ever had. I had come to her, come with her to church on that first Sunday morning. I was following her around like a puppy dog, just watching what she did. I'd never been in this building before. But this was no ordinary day. Because as I found out from talking to her, the previous Sunday there had been a terrible church split. And several of the families, it wasn't a big church, it wasn't as many people here then as there are now, but several of the families that were the most faithful and the most stalwart families of the church had taken their ball and gone home. And they had gone down the road to another church. The gaps they left behind were gaping holes. And I watched her as she ran around here like a chicken with her head cut off, trying to do not only what she normally did in preparation for the service, but all these other things that so many people had done for so long. I remember asking her how the church could go on with such a loss. And her words might not seem like much to you, but they've stuck with me for half a century. She, she kept on working. With what she was doing, as I recall, she was right over here doing something. The choir used to be right here. And she was up in this little area uh, working on that. And I said, how can the church go on without these people? She didn't even look up. She just kept right on going. And she softly said, nobody is indispensable. God gave the gift to you. And he wants you to use it. His first and best plan is for you to get the reward for using it. But you're ignoring God's plan will in no way stop God's plan. His plan will be accomplished with or without you. Christian, why? Let somebody else receive the reward God meant for you. Do you not want to hear the words, well done, now good and faithful servant, when you stand before him? And face Jesus face to face. He died for you. He is your Savior. But he is also the one to whom you will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for how you have served and how you have used the gifts he he gave you. He put you here. He put you here for a reason. He gave you a task. Are you being faithful to it? Are you going to let somebody else take it from you? C.S. Lewis once said, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. He was, I believe, speaking of salvation there, heaven and hell. The fact that some will receive Christ and be saved, while some will not. And God will give them what they chose. Thy will be done, he will say to them. But I think the quote also applies to the thought at hand here today. Some will face God and receive the reward for doing what he asked of them. Others will not, for that was what they chose. 
If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One last application, and with this we'll close. And this is the application that I think we've made in every, every message from Esther so far, and it's the application that's the main thought from the whole book. No matter how it looks, God's people always win. No matter how it looks, God's people win. As we end chapter 4, the deliverance of the Jews from extermination has begun. In the remaining chapters, we're going to see it completed. God's people win. God's people always win. Billy Graham said, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's all going to turn out all right. And so it is. No matter how bleak it may look, God's people win. No matter the forces arrayed against them, God's people win. No matter how loud the voices trying to shout them down, God's people win. And so I ask you this morning, are you one of God's people? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Are you born again? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you redeemed? Have you been adopted into the family of God? If you answer to that, if you can't answer that with a resounding yes, then all I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you, when we sing in just a moment, to step out and let someone pray with you and answer your questions. Ask, as the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Because as... This passage teaches us so well, God's people always win. And as we're going to see, as we continue on in the next chapter, and the chapter after that, the next few chapters, those who are not God's people lose. Mordecai told Esther, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One day Jesus said to his disciples, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. God does move in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep in his dark and hidden minds with never-failing skill. He fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So, God, we trust in you. Oh, God, we trust in you. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful passage from the Old Testament. Speak to our hearts from it, I pray. Lord, if there are those who need to act on any of these things, help us to do. Help us as we sing this invitation song. Help us, Lord, as we close our service. Some might need to respond by stepping out and coming to the front and kneeling here and doing business with you in prayer. Some might need to come and say, I, I just am not certain if I am part of the family of God, if I am one of the people of God. Uh, Lord, if that's the case, I pray people would come. Let us show them from Scripture how they could be saved. And Lord, certainly there may be some here today who have gifts, who have a purpose in the kingdom of God, and they're not doing anything with it. I pray you convict hearts today and help us all, like Esther, to resolve that we're going to do even if it means we perish, we're going to do what you have called us to do. And Lord, I pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.